0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, Church. Remain standing with me this morning in reverence to the reading of the Holy Word of God. This morning we'll be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 to chapter 10. First Baptist Church of Crosby, hear the word of the Lord. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household hold before our eyes. And he brought us out from them, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us, We are careful to do all this commandment before our Lord our God, as He has commanded us. And all of God's people said, You may receive it.
1: with me one more time. Father God, we ask that you would still our minds and steady our hearts. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Hearts to believe what you said in your word. Father, I pray that you would restrain my lips, allow me only to say that which is helpful and true. Give these people ears to hear it well, that we may be changed by your word. Father, we love you. We trust you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet one more time, please. We turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We've come to a new section this morning, beginning in verse 11 and reading all the way down through the end of the chapter. This is the Holy And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. the spirit all god's people said amen Amen. you may be seated so when we began our study of this letter from the apostle paul to the church in ephesus i uh borrowed a word from a man called sinclair ferguson he he took the title to this letter he took the town to which it was written and he um, he made it into a verb He said that every Christian at one point in their life needs needs to be Ephesian. 51 weeks in, I'm feeling pretty Ephesian. And we come now this morning to the fourth major section here in this beautiful letter. You remember how it began? It began with a doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul was just inviting us to join him in a song of praise. Praising the triune God for all that he has done in our salvation. All that the Father has planned. All that the Son accomplished. And all that the Holy Spirit came to apply to our lives. We worked through that magnificent doctrine as Paul swept us up into heaven. And showed us this cosmic view from eternity past to eternity future of our redemption. We then move to the second section, he moved from this doxology to a prayer. He was praying to God, specifically he was thanking God for these faithful saints. Paul knew what it was like to have his heart ripped out. Paul knew what it was like to be surrounded by people that would ultimately not continue on to the end with him. Some for good reasons, just because their ministry had called them in different directions, but some because of sin. Some because men had proven that they weren't chasing after the same thing that he was, namely, that the gospel of Jesus Christ may be known to the, to the ends of the earth. And so he, he prays and he thanks God for these saints who are still there with him. And he prays a very specific request. His request is that the God of the universe would enlighten the eyes of their heart. They might know the power of God. All that he has done to make them Christian. Then in that third section, the section that we've just concluded together, he talked about the way in which this power has been manifest in their lives. This power of God, the same power by which he raised his son from the grave, it raised us from spiritual death. You were once dead in your sins and trespasses, but God. By the power of God, how he has raised us up to a newness of life. He has made us a new creation. He has granted us the faith necessary to lay hold of Christ Jesus. Those empty hands of faith by which we receive all that he has done for us. Therefore, we celebrate the reality that we are God's workmanship. We're a poem. We're a masterpiece. We're a thing that he's building and creating. We're trophies, bless you. We're trophies of his grace. So now we come to this section, verse 11 through 22, and really it follows a very similar pattern to everything that's come before it. It talks about who we once were, where we once were. It talks about what God has done to deal with that situation. And then it tells us the end for which he has acted. And so in many ways, this is gonna feel a little bit like we're covering some of the same topics that we covered in verses one through 10, except what you'll find is that that being dead in Christ, Dead in sin, excuse me, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That was a statement about the whole of mankind. Remember, he says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now as we come here to this new section in verse 11, he's not talking about the whole of mankind. He's not talking about every man that has ever lived. He's talking about a specific, although a very, very large group. He's speaking to the Gentiles. He says here in verse 11, remember that you at one time, the Gentiles, you remember that the world was basically divided up into two groups in the mind of the Jewish men back then. It was the Jews and then it was everyone else, the Gentiles. So we see this shift here, not just in terms of the whole world narrowing down to a large but specific group called the Gentiles, but we'll also see a much more corporate feel to the way that the Apostle Paul speaks now. It's very timely for us as a church as we consider, who are we? Like, what's God doing here? He talks about this corporate reality, this oneness that we're meant to have in Christ Jesus. But as he speaks to these Gentiles. He speaks to we, Gentiles. He's pointing out to us some very specific hurdles that he had to overcome in order for us to become Christian, in order for us to become a part of his church. Some specific hurdles that he had to overcome that wasn't necessarily the case for the Jewish believers. Something peculiar and particular to the non-Jew with respect to our relationship to God, our relationship to his law and to his ordinances, our, our position in the economy of God. That's why he says in verse 13, he's speaking to us as those who were once far off. we were far off, separated from God. Right before this in verse 12, he points to five realities, five realities that, that really bring sharp focus to what it means for us to have been far off. Okay, we were far off. What does that mean? Well, he gives us five here in verse 12. First, he says we were separated from Christ. Second, he says we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Third, he says we were strangers to the covenant of promise. Fourth, he says we had no hope. And fifth, he says that we were without God in the world. Making clear that the Gentiles once had no claim to these things. We were not heirs to any of the promises, any of these spiritual blessings which belong to God's people. And he sums it all up with being without God. I've told you over and over again, And over again, the ultimate promise of God in scripture, the promise that resounds in every single administration of this covenant of grace is, I will be your God and you will be my people. He says, there was once a time when you were far off without God, without hope in the world. But he goes on to say, but now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, he says, you are brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 19, he says that we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Yet again, the Apostle Paul is anxious to make sure that we recognize what God has done, the hurdles he had to clear, the power necessary for God to welcome you into his family. What does it take to make a man a Christian? So he wants us to see this, all that was overcome by God, not only in reconciling us to himself, but in reconciling believing Jew, to believing gentile. That's what we see right here in verse 11 as he talks about we who are once called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision. This is that dividing wall. In verse 14 he calls it a middle wall of partition, a dividing wall of enmity and hostility between Jew and Gentile. This seemingly insurmountable gulf that existed. Again I tell you, it was the Jew and then it was everyone else. But Paul makes clear that this wasn't just a separation on paper. This wasn't just a separation in status, that there was enmity. There was hostility between them. But he goes on to say that God has not just reconciled us to himself as Gentiles, but to all believing Jews as well. He has broken down that dividing wall. He has broken down that hostility. Verse 15 says, creating in himself one new man in the place of two. Where there once was two, now there is one. Verse 16, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That in this reconciliation into one new man, into one body, that part of the work of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross is he has obliterated that hostility that once existed. Now this is not the first time that the Apostle Paul has hinted to this kind of unity, has hinted to this middle dividing wall of partition coming down. You remember at the end of... uh, Into that first section there in chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, he talks about we, speaking of the Jews, we who were the first to hope in Christ, and you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. There were hints of what he now says explicitly here. That the thing that joins us together, the thing that takes down this hostility, the thing that removes this dividing wall, is nothing other than the cross of Jesus Christ and those who hear and believe that by that he is joining us together. Not only calling individual men to himself, but calling us together that we may be one. That we will experience these eternal spiritual blessings. We'll experience the grace and mercy and unmerited love of God. This kindness of God, that we will experience it together. As one people. As one body. As one church. That's what God is doing. Pray that you haven't lost your sense of awe at the wonder of this. It would be enough if God had called you to himself to live this thing out like a lone wolf. But the blessing of the body, the blessing of the people of God, the blessing of making those who were once the most fierce of enemies into brothers. We must be reminded there is no other place where real unity can be found other than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, he says that he has come to preach peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. There is no other peace. There is no other lasting unity. What I have found in my short 44 years of life is that people have this tendency with regards to trying to build peace or trying to build unity. There's really really two ditches that men tend to fall in. The one ditch is we build boundaries where there ought not be boundaries. We set up walls, we set up divisions, we set up camps, we choose parties based on things that should never divide us. And yet they cause division. They make men that should be brothers and friends and enemies and strangers. But, but the other ditch over here is to ignore real differences, to ignore the things that God says actually matter and to seek to build unity on a basis of something where there will never be real and lasting unity. And what he's saying here is, if you want real unity, the answer isn't programs. The answer isn't to ignore differences. The answer isn't trying to pretend like we are all the same. It's to come to Christ Jesus and allow him to build us into one thing, into one body, into one people. And if we seek to build unity on anything else, such a thing will never last. And so if we want to be a unified people, not just the church of First Baptist Crosby, but the church, Of course, it must begin with us here. These are your brothers and your sisters. If we want unity in this place, we will find it nowhere other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the stronger our understanding and appreciation of who Christ is, of what he has done in our salvation, the more we behold the glory of God's grace in our lives, the stronger that bond will become. The less there will be room for division for backbiting, for fighting, for alienation, for feeling left out, that the answer is simple. Quit looking at each other and look to Christ. Quit looking at yourself so much and look to Christ. I can tell you something else that I've learned in my short 44 years on this planet and my even shorter five years as pastor of this church, that everywhere I find professing believers experiencing some sense of disunity, and alienation, and enmity. I can guarantee you that when I sit down and I visit with those people, what I find is they have not spent enough time meditating on the glory of God's grace in Christ. Within marriages, within friendships, within business, and certainly within the church. Anytime there's division like this, I can promise you that one party or perhaps both don't have a clear view of the gospel of Jesus Christ or they've allowed themselves to take it for granted. They've allowed their focus to shift on other things. You don't have much room to take up an offense against a brother if you're too busy falling at the feet of King Jesus who has forgiven you much. You don't have much room in your heart to hold on to anger and and unforgiveness to make the man sitting across from you who is your brother into your enemy. When you're so overwhelmed by the mercy and the demerited kindness of Christ Jesus in your life and so we build our unity based on this. Knowing who we once were. If I'm to have any thoughts about you, if I'm to look at you and say, can you believe we're here? You're here, I'm here. Neither one of us should be here. We stare at the beauty of God's grace in the face of Christ Jesus and that's where this togetherness comes. So, those are the main topics. That's the, how high do we fly, Amy Weatherly? 10,000 feet or 30,000 feet? 30,000 feet. She's not a stewardess or anything. She just corrected me one time because I thought we flew at like 100 feet. She's like, no, dude. That's my 30,000 foot flyover. And those are the things that we're going to cover in the weeks to come. But I've got to give you one word of I've got to give you one word of preparation, one word of one word of warning. We're going to have a very difficult time understanding as as we make these shifts to much. Much greater corporate focus and considering these realities of, of hostility and separation between Jew and Gentile and a particular separation that the Gentile experienced from God. We're going to have a very difficult time understanding these if we have not yet come to understand the whole of this book to be a unified story of God's redemptive plan. Basically, everything you read from Genesis 3.15 through the end of this book is this one-sided rescue plan, the God of the universe coming to rescue sinners. The God of the universe and the salvation of sinners, this is a dynamic and progressive revelation of what God has done. This isn't people learning more and more about how God saves. This is God revealing more and more about how he is saving. But if we have a disunity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and, 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 and it's... There are some particular hurdles. Whenever we come to New Testament passages, we're working through the book of Judges. I'd encourage you to come back tonight. We come to the end of the story of um, the Judge Samson. So unless you're providentially prohibited from coming, I'd encourage you to come back tonight and, and sit under what God is telling us here. But there are some particular hurdles when we go back to a story that's on the other side of the cross. It's on the other side of the day of Pentecost as we go back to the story of the Old Testament and we try to see how does that apply to us today. Men can have this temptation to just turn it into a bunch of interesting stories about right and wrong, about good triumphing over evil. We can turn it into just a bunch of morality and a bunch of pictures of how we ought to be and completely lose sight of the God who is saving me today was saving his people there in the same way. And so unless we have that sense of unity, that singularity of purpose in which God is unveiling his redemptive plan, we're going to miss the point. Or perhaps if you've fallen into one of these traps of believing that God saved the Jews in one way and saved us in a completely other, that that plan A was the law and plan B was the cross of Jesus Christ because plan A failed so tremendously, then you're going to have a hard time understanding what the Apostle Paul is saying to us here. We must recognize this was always God's plan. Remember chapter 1, verse 9, he says that the mystery of God's will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, that this is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. This was a plan of God from before the foundation of the world that came in the fullness of time. Chapter 3, verse 8, we're going to get to these words, that Paul has been called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. A mystery hidden for ages in God so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. He's saying he is preaching a sermon to the angels and the demons, a sermon of this unity, a sermon of this reconciliation, a sermon of the glory of God's grace and the salvation of us, those who were once far off. He's preaching this, but he goes on in verse 11 to say that this was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was always God's plan. We are not plan B. This is why even when we see in the coming of God to Abraham, he says that through you, the nations of the world will be blessed. That salvation is of the Jews, but to the world. And so unless we have that in view, we're going to miss out on all that God has for us to see here in this beautiful picture. It's beautiful passage. So let's go ahead and look at it. First two words there. Therefore, remember. Therefore is just a, just a reminder that we're to look back at everything that has just led up to this point. That these aren't two segregated thoughts or this this isn't some altogether new teaching that the Apostle Paul is launching into. Tying back to everything that we've just said. That because God's grace is what must come in salvation. Because by the power of that grace he has brought you from death to life. Because of a great act of love, he loves you because he has loved you. He has made you from an enemy into an adopted son. Because he has done all of this in a way that can only be attributed to grace, it is not of works in a way that man cannot boast. Therefore, because of all that, because of all that we have just studied, he gives us a commandment here. What is it? Remember. There's our first imperative. I've, I've told you that very broad strokes, very generally speaking, Paul's letter to the Ephesians breaks up into two parts. The first three chapters are the indicative. It's all the things that have happened, all the things that are true of you in Christ. And that the last three chapters are all the imperatives, all the ways that we are to live in light of who we are in Christ Jesus. And yet what we see right here is here is our first imperative in the whole of this letter. The first imperative is to do what? Remember. Remember. An act not just of the mind, but of the heart and of the soul. He says it twice here, actually. Remember, he says, he says here, therefore, remember. And then he goes into a parenthetical statement that God willing, we'll cover next week. Speaking about the circumcision versus the uncircumcision. And the things that God has called his people to do. And the way in which it affects them in the flesh. And then at the beginning of verse 12, he comes back and says it again. Remember. Now, scripture is filled all over with calls to God's people to Remember. Or sometimes in the negative, we're called not to forget. Specifically all throughout the Old Testament, he's he's repeatedly calling his people to remember that day, to remember the day of your redemption, to remember when you were enslaved in Egypt, to remember my power in calling you out of slavery, to remember what I've now called you to. Remember my mighty hand in your salvation. Remember. I've told you often about the fact that this was the prelude to the Ten Commandments, that calling his people there to him at Mount Sinai. He begins before before giving us the Decalogue. He he tells us there that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why am I issuing you this law? Why am I revealing myself to you in this code? Why am I calling you to live in this way? Remember, remember that I'm the God that did this. This is necessary because apparently we're a people who want to forget we're quick to forget these kinds of things that's why he tells them in Deuteronomy 4:9 only take care it requires an, an active work on our part remembering isn't just isn't just um, not casting something out of your mind it's working diligently to protect that thing it's meditating on that thing it's resting on that thing it's continually preaching that thing to ourselves Because he says, Deuteronomy 4, take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget these things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And so you make them known to your children and to your children's children. We have this innate ability to forget certain things, specifically the things of God. I've I've told you how convicted I've become about how little scripture I've got hidden in my mind and in my heart. I can recite to you almost every single line from the television show The Office. I can hear two words from one episode of The Office and I can tell you how the rest of the thing goes. I can tell you some meaningless meaningless statistics about baseball or football or basketball heroes from my childhood. I can tell you about all manner of things that are meaningless. But have I not guarded my heart and taken care to keep my soul diligently to hide the things of God in my heart by preaching them to my children and someday to my children's children? He's saying this is an activity, this is an action, this is an aggressive thing. I've got to work hard not to forget these things. So again, I say, do not remember, do not forget. It isn't just about holding on to something mentally. It's contemplating, it's meditating, it's resting, it's preaching, it's reciting. It's allowing ourselves to routinely think about what would have been had I remained outside of Christ. And that's uncomfortable. Allowing myself to remember who I was outside of Christ and what I deserved outside of Christ. But this is the heart of worship, isn't it? How often do we find King David throughout the Psalms calling people to remember their desperate estate? Like Jonah sinking down in the water. Down, down, down he goes and the seaweed wrapping around his head until he's at the base of the mountain. But then God shows up. We're to remember these things and that's what drives our worship. Psalm 143, 5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hand. But these are the things we've come to celebrate even today power of God and redemption the power of God and salvation and so it helps to keep his people in this act of remembrance he would call them to do particular things you remember the prophet Samuel 1 Samuel seven twelve. he takes a stone and he sets it up after the people of God have been redeemed after the Philistines had been thrown into confusion the people pray the people repent and then it says Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer He said, till now, the Lord has helped us. We set up these monuments in our life as reminders that up until this point, God has every time helped us. Every time he has lived up to his promises. So he calls his people to look to this stone, to look to this marker, to look to this monument and remember the goodness of God. You remember in his farewell address, 1 Samuel 12, 24, he says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done to you. This is another another gift that God has given his people in the form of the feast. Is that not what the feasts are? The Passover feast? Or the feast of booths? These various feasts in which the people of God are to remember his faithfulness all the way up until that moment because we, we forget so easily. You say in this moment, I say in this moment when things are nice and calm, I will never forget all that God has done for me in Christ Jesus. But then when the enemy starts walking down Main Street, how quickly do we act as though God has never done a thing? How quickly do we act as though he's not been faithful to his promises? How quickly do we forget his character and his goodness and his grace? And so we've got to continually preach these things and set up these monuments and observe these things and come to the word of God and allow it to speak into us lest we forget we actively pursue this memory. But I want you to look at what the Apostle Paul is calling these men to remember. He's not just calling them to remember the power of God in salvation. He's not just calling them to remember the character and the goodness of God. He's calling them to remember where they once were. Therefore, remember. Remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, And without God in this world, he's saying specifically, I want you to remember your hopelessness. I want you to remember your alienation. I want you to remember your helplessness. I want you to remember that you were once far away from God. Now, our heart tends to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to put our hand to the plow and never look back? Aren't we a victorious people? And isn't that the work of the devil to try and remind us of our sin? Isn't that the picture? That God calls us to fix our eyes forward and the devil wants to keep dragging us back to who we once were. Doesn't scripture tell us that God has forgotten our sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west? That's in part why we can have such a difficult time with the first three verses in this chapter two, talking about our wretchedness, our depravity, our lostness and deadness and sin, the fact that we were by nature children fitted for wrath. Part of the reason we can recoil at this is because we don't want to think about those things. We want to move forward as those who have been made into something new and won't the enemy just use this memory of who we once were to drag us right back into that last lifestyle? Well, certainly there is a kind of remembering that's dangerous any kind of remembering that allows us to wallow in those things or that perhaps causes us to long for that type of life, the life that we once had, or anything that might drag us, might, might cause us to want to return to Egypt as if it wasn't our slavery. Certainly those types of remembering aren't healthy. They aren't fruitful. And there is a faulty remem- remembering, faulty remembering. Numbers 11.4. Now the ramble that was among them. This is as Israel is there in the wilderness, having been redeemed from Egypt. Now the ramble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing but this manna to look at. They're remembering with fondness what was their slavery. They're remembering with fondness what was death and separation. They're, they're remembering as if it was a joyful thing. And the, the most practical picture of this, I, I probably shared this with you before, but there, there's a time in a man's life, right? He, he, he graduates high school or college and he gets him a wife and he has him some children and then life starts to settle in. And you'll hear these men that will say, oh man, if I was just 22 and single again, if I, man, if I was just 21 and single again, I'd have a new girl out on a date every night. Man, life would be good. You look at him and go, did you have a new girl on a date every night? No, man, but I would have. You're a gargoyle, my friend. You need to praise God that he's given you a wife and that she will still kiss you on occasion. We have this tendency to remember wrongly, to remember what was our slavery as if it were our freedom, to remember what is death as if it were life. So no, we don't remember like that. We remember who we were when God heard our cry and saw our affliction. Remember who and where we were when God came and exercised this power in the middle of our sufferings. We remember who we are in Christ and how far away we were. It's in this remembering that we prevent ourselves from ever trusting in our own beauty. How did we just conclude, verse 10, that we are his workmanship? We are something new that he's building, not us. So that it's in this remembering that we don't get wrapped up in all our beauty and all our abilities and all that we are. This this would be like the the, the pot of clay celebrating as if he had made himself. He says, as you remember who it is that has made you, as you remember what you once were, you make certain that you don't boast in anything that is in you. That you only boast in him, the one who has created you and is creating you. this isn't just an Old Testament concept. The Apostle Paul talks about it over and over again throughout his letters. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He's bringing up this long list of sin, this long list of sorrowful things, this long list of things that keep men separated from God. He says, and such were some of you, but you've been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. We can't celebrate the being washed and justified and sanctified if we don't realize how filthy we were. How dirty we were before this. He says, remember who you once were. This is how we keep ourselves from becoming the Pharisee standing next to the tax collector. As the tax collector beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I've got nothing to bring you but these empty hands. It keeps us from looking at him and going, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Yes, but for the grace of God, go I. But I am his workmanship. Any good that comes in me comes as a result of him. And how do I remember that? I remember who I was when he found me. A filthy and ugly child. Nothing about me lovable. Nothing about me worthy. Therefore, I remember that I'm a trophy of God's goodness and his mercy and his power and his grace. Now, if this causes you to be disheartened, this causes you to be discouraged, if this causes you to be bashful about coming to Him in worship, if this causes you to doubt today as we come to this table, if that's who I once was, how can I come to this table? If the preacher reminds me of who I once was, how can I possibly come to this place? Beloved, if that's the reaction, I submit to you that you're looking at it through the wrong lens. You're not believing what the Scripture actually has to say about it. You're missing the point. You need to understand that even in glory, even in the eternities of heaven, you will not be unaware of your sin. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why is He worthy? He was slain. Why was He slain? You don't get to heaven and see the Lamb who was slain and say, man, I'm so glad He was slain for all y'all. So when you finally see the lamb who was slain and you see your savior face to face, as you finally see your sin the way God sees your sin, you see your savior, the one on whom that sin and the curse has fallen, in some kind of way, you will not be filled with sorrow and tears because the scripture promises. You think, how can that that not leave me as a puddle of mush? How can I possibly look him in the eye? How can I possibly rejoice for all eternity knowing these things that were once true? Revelation 2.14, there will be no mourning or crying or pain. What has he said in the passage just before this? That the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness come upon us. It's grace and it's kindness and it's no pain and it's no tears and it's no sorrow. In fact, it only causes our joy and our satisfaction and our pleasure and our worship to increase. Because as you see this sin for what it is, as you see it for a thing that's been defeated in Christ Jesus, you can't help but rejoice when you for the first time in your life recognize all that He has redeemed you for and just how unworthy you are. In addition to this, as you're able to look back and you say, God, I know that you work all things for my good. I had no idea that included even that. You did good for me, God, in my sin in my rebellion, in my wretchedness, in my depravity, in my ugliness, in my filthiness, you did good for me in that that wouldn't have otherwise come, and so I'm filled with joy and praise even now. That's the lens that we view this through. And I think we see a picture of it in the New Testament. In the life of Jesus, Luke 7, verse 37. I, I seem to come to this text at least once every couple of months, it seems like, at least referring to it. Luke seven thirty seven and behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table that is Jesus in the Pharisee's house she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment a woman's hair is her glory You see as she takes it down and she is rubbing this ointment into his feet and her tears are washing his feet. And then the people that are there, Simon, the Pharisee and the others, they were repulsed by this. Jesus, if you knew who this woman was, you ever feel like that? Jesus, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't let me touch you. You wouldn't want to be joined to me like this. The Pharisees are preaching to this woman the same thing that we sometimes preach to ourselves. If you knew who she was, you wouldn't let her touch her like that. And Jesus talks to the man, presents a parable about a man who has forgiven debts of various sizes. But then in verse 44, he says, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss but from the time i came in she has not ceased to kiss my feet you did not anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with ointment therefore i tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but he was forgiven little loves little beloved there is no one who has little sin We bring into this relationship nothing but massive amounts of sin. The question isn't, do you have little sin or do you have big sin? The question is, do you see your sin for what it is? As you come to an awareness of the scope and the scale and the size and the depth of your sin, as you come to a remembrance of who you once were, an understanding of the wrath that we deserve, the danger that we once faced. How many times in your life have you been this close to death and never knew it? Yet we come to the Word of God and we recognize that we were standing at the precipice of hell, and it was there that He saved us. How can this not increase our love and our joy and set our worship on fire? How could we ever come into this place with some kind of emotionless, dry, meaningless, rote, just singing some words upon a screen? How can you ever serve Him with anything other than the full of your heart? How can we be quick to to, to, to hold on to unforgiveness and slow to forgive and extend mercy and love and grace to those who are around us if we know that these things are true? Therefore, he says to us, remember. Remember who you once were. Remember where you once were. But the reality is we can't do that. We say, well, I don't want to remember now because now I'm redeemed, now I'm free, now I'm victorious. Fine, I would have thought about those things then, but why remember them now? You can't remember them then. You couldn't think rightly about them then. Do you understand? It's only on this side that you'll actually remember what he has done. As he has enlightened the eyes of your heart. Again, I tell you, how, t- how many times have you been this close to death and never had a clue until you look backwards? He says it's only here once you've been redeemed that you can recognize where you were. Because you've got an enemy that works desperately to shush you to sleep. To lull you to sleep. To convince you that there's peace. Peace where there is no peace. So it's only now that we can remember. It's only now that we can rightly see as the word of God reveals to us, discloses to us where we once were. You didn't know you were an enemy of God when you were an enemy of God. Or at least you didn't care in that moment. But it's only now. It's one of those weird things when, one of those weird things in life where it's actually the further you get removed from the thing, the clearer you see it. You know, policemen will tell you that when you go to interview somebody after something tragic, you need to get to them quickly. Remember, if, it's, if it's emotional enough, your chances of getting a clear description are very slim anyway. But you need to get to them as quickly as possible. Because the more time goes on, the more unclarity seeps in. The opposite is true of the Christian. The more time you spend in this word. The more time your affections and your thoughts and your, and, and your ideas about who you once were has changed. The clearer you see who you once were. So as an 85-year-old, you should be able to see more clearly who you actually were in your 20s than you did at that time. He's saying, remember. Remember through the lens of my word. Not to discourage you, to drag you back into that life, but to increase your joy, to elevate your worship, to make His glory known more fully to yourself and those around you that you preach this story to, that all those things that you... Look back on and despise that those things, even those things will be used of God in service to your happiness. And so this morning we come just as just as the Old Testament saints, they would set up an Ebenezer stone or they would observe these feasts. Just as God knows, he knows the fickleness of our heart and he knows how slow we are to understand. And he's revealed these things in his word and he he speaks these things to us through his word. But but he knows that we are tangible people. We're we're physical people. And so it's a gift of grace from us. He gives us this table. What does he say at the supper? He says, do this in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? Remembering the miry clay from which you lifted us up. We're remembering the separation that we once had. We're remembering your goodness as you call us to this table, recognizing that we were once far off. We're not the kind of people that you would break bread with. Not the people that you would have a fellowship meal with. And yet you've come here and what do you offer us at this table? But yourself, Christ Jesus' body and his blood, a reminder that what we need is not just his death, but his life. The whole of who he is. He says, you come here and you feast upon me in your soul. Spiritually, you feast upon me and I will strengthen you. And your memory will become clearer and clearer and clearer. And you'll be able to look back upon the wretchedness of those former days. And you will not weep. You will rejoice. Knowing that I've met you here at this table and I've strengthened you. I've encouraged you. And then you do this in the company of your brethren. You do this as you look around and you say, look, God, you have brought peace into my life where there would be no Peace. We could have no unity. We could have no fellowship. We could have no communion apart from you. You purchased this bread. You purchased this meal. We couldn't afford it. You bought us this unity by the blood of your own body. You bought us this unity by drinking down the wrath of your Father. So we come to this table this morning to celebrate that, who we once were, but remembering who we are now in Christ Jesus. We come and say, make us more like you. Meet us at this table. Fill us with joy. Joy. And bind us more closely together as we come together. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We want to be a people who remember. We thank you that your memory is perfect. Over and over in your word, you said, I have not forgotten my covenant. I have not forgotten my promises. So we come to this table this morning to remember your goodness and your steadfast love. We come to remember all that you have done for us, even as we were dead and far off. We come to remember your perfect life, your righteousness. We come to remember your atoning death. We come to remember these things on our account as those who have reached out empty hands of faith and received you as Savior and Lord. So, Father, I pray in the moments to come, you would cause us to examine ourselves. If there is any sin within us that we have not yet confessed, any iniquity within us that we continue to hold on to, allow us to confess that and entrust it to you now. To repent and cry out for mercy. Father, if there's any here who is downcast and filled with sorrow and sadness over their own sin, Father, cause them to lift their heads and look upon you. This table is for sinners. Sinners. table is for repentant sinners, so allow them to come with joy. Father, if there's any brokenness within this body, any broken fellowship, any lack of communion, Father, would you work to heal that now? Calls us to love each other with a sacrificial love. Father, we ask you to do these things, and we look forward with great anticipation to them. So we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord.